Well, I really do hope you had a good week. I hope you're doing well. I wake up on Sundays in moments like this, and over and over again, I'm just amazed that so many people are that hungry for the Word of God and that hungry to be together in worship. Even last Sunday, you know, it, it was the first Auburn home game, but it was Labor Day weekend. And so I'm showing up to church, and I'm like, you know, like maybe some people will come. And I've got a, a little bit of something that I feel like God's given me to say. And like thousands of you showing up with hearts and minds open and available to the degree that I was leaving last Sunday and amazed by two things. Number one, I was just amazed that so many people were passionately wanting to be in church on a holiday weekend. And number two, I was amazed by your patience in the parking lot. I looked out and I was like, whoa, y'all still come here? And that happens because I'm always in here for so long. By the time I leave, no one's out there. So I got to see if you park at the baseball fields, what happens after our church services? I didn't know, guys. Sorry. But I was like, whoa, they're still waiting. Church has been over for 45 minutes. This is crazy. And I just want to start my sermon by telling, and I know this isn't relevant for you if you're in Birmingham or Lake Martin, but we need to talk about this because we have a lot of people here who are not from Auburn. You're here from out of town. Maybe you live here for a couple of years while you're in school and you didn't know this. So we need this, this information to get out there. This is crazy, y'all. It's miraculous. When you're leaving the baseball fields on Airport Road, you can turn left. All the local people are like, oh, wow, he said it. It's amazing. I know, this is crazy. But if everyone coming from the baseball field goes right on Airport Road right there, we got this whole parking lot that's full that goes all the way around behind the building, and everybody's trying to go to the same light. What's crazy about Auburn is that the roads all kind of lead to each other. And so if you go left on Airport Road, you will end up 20 minutes ahead of the people who are waiting to go right because you'll end up on Dean Road. And for many of you, you will end up closer to where you wanted to be than you originally intended by going right. And I just say that to go, oh, wow, I can't believe our people still come to church here and wait that long to leave. And I can't believe how patient you are. And also, I can't believe how amazing our parking team is. Can we give it up for those men and women? It's awesome. So we're believing for new things as we leave today. But we've been in this sermon series called Remnant, where we're talking about being faithful to be the remnant of God. In the Old Testament, the remnant is known as the faithful few, that God has a nation, Israel, to call his own. But the real nation of God is the remnant of people who are being faithful through prayer, who are going deeper in their faith. And what we're saying in this season of our church is that our church is not going to start to cater to the massive number of people that are coming and calling this church home. We are going to invite the masses to be a part of this group called the remnant who are actually passionately pursuing Jesus and actually serious about discipleship and actually wanting to give our lives for what matters most, the glory of Jesus. And so you're invited today not to to just get baptized or say yes to a relationship with God, you're invited to allow Jesus to revolutionize your entire life and to see him as more valuable than any other option that you have. So we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount and we're going, hey, this isn't bonus material for special Christians. This is the culture of the kingdom of God if you call yourself a follower of Jesus. And the invitation is not to look at all the ways of the Sermon on the Mount and go, okay, we need to try to do these things. It's about seeing Jesus as the ultimate and supreme treasure of your heart and seeing his way of life as better than any other option that you have. And so I love watching people go, I don't want to give my life just being a consumer of Jesus's merit. I want to be transformed to be a disciple of Jesus's way. That's the heartbeat of this series. We're saying it every week. God, transform us 
from just being consumers of Jesus's merit to being fully committed disciples of Jesus's way. We don't want to just come to God for the forgiveness that we need to feel good about eternity. We want to come to Jesus going, you can have my whole life, all my stuff, my kids, my future, my story. I am submitted and surrendered to you. And what's happening and what I'm watching happening across the board of so many different age groups is that we're getting to this place of almost like humble defiance against the culture where it's not like this arrogant and proud, we're going to do something different, but it's almost like this humble, hey, our lives cannot look like the rest of the world and we live in the Bible Belt and put a Christian stamp on the American dream and feel good about ourselves for a little while. No, no, no. It's got to be a level of defiance that goes, I'm radically living my life according to the ways of Jesus. And no, it's not perfect, but I am being transformed. So that's what I'm believing God's going to take us deeper in today. And today is going to take on sort of a whole new perspective because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ends that section where he's like, you've heard it said this, but I say this. You've heard it said, do not commit murder, but I say, don't even be angry. He gets to the inner issue of sin, but now he's going to transition and he's going to start talking about our stuff and he's going to start talking about heaven in a way that is very real and relevant to your life today. So the title of this part of our remnant series, you like how I said this part because I forgot what number we're on. We're halfway there, guys. This installment of remnant is called Eyes on Heaven. Eyes on Heaven. Can you look at somebody next to you and say, get your eyes up. Get your eyes up. Eyes on Heaven. Get your eyes up. So what Jesus is going to do in this long section that we're going to read of the Sermon on the Mount is he's going to talk about heaven in such a way that it's not some far off reality that we're waiting to arrive at when we die, but it's actually something that we interact with on a daily basis now. So I know we say a lot at ACC that heaven is not about a place we're going one day. It's about something that has to get inside of us today, that Jesus announced the kingdom of God that's readily available for you right here and right now. It's not about waiting till later. It's about participating right now. And we say it every week and people get pumped up, but I don't think we really know what it means. And when you see how much Jesus believes that heaven should be on the attention and the affection of your mind and heart every single day, you will be shocked at how relevant he believes it is to what you're going to do when you leave this space today. And I don't mean like once you get to a funeral or once you find out something about your health that causes you to sort of become alarmed to the idea that your life might end. I'm talking about an awareness of heaven as something that's real and connected to your daily life. It would be hard to find any doctrine in the Bible that frustrates me more with misconceptions of the way Christians live their lives than the doctrine of heaven. I know that many of us have attended funerals and been in spaces where we talk about eternal life and we talk about this place called heaven and we all have a limited amount of knowledge about it, but just the way we talk about it and the way we relate to it shows how little we actually know about it. When we say things like heaven gained an angel, or we say things like they're, they're in a better place, they got their wings and they're waiting to see me. I always want to be sensitive because I know people are going through a tough time. And when you're looking to hold on to hope, you'll pretty much hold on to anything. But it frustrates me because we have this book that is overwhelmingly clear about the reality of heaven and about some of the literal physical implications of heaven. So I love to remind our church that heaven is not an eternal church service that you're going to attend where there's a speaker and a band and you're just going to rotate them out. It's going to be like Christian Woodstock and we're all just going to be in a field and we're going to rotate out bands in different eras of music and we just sit there forever. It's not that. 
Heaven is life. Like you're going to have relationships. You're going to have a physical body. It will be a resurrected version of the body that you are living in right here and right now. Heaven is not some theoretical place where we float around like angels. The scriptures teach us that when Jesus comes back, then heaven is going to invade the earth and there will be a new heaven and a new earth called the new Jerusalem where we will exist with physical bodies living in physical locations and ruling and reigning on planet earth. Y'all, we're going to live forever. We're going to eat food. We're going to talk to each other. We're going to delight. We're going to enjoy the reason why we were created totally unmarred and untainted by sin. And it's amazing. And we don't ever talk about this. We go, oh, just save that for when we need to worry about eternity and save that. And the reason why we do that is because we don't feel confident enough to walk in what's actually true about heaven. But it's also because it makes us uncomfortable to think about this life ending, even though we all universally agree that it will. And what results is a sporadic awareness of heaven where we all live like we're going to be here forever and miss out on the peace that comes from knowing I belong there and my life rests with Christ. I'm hidden with him and I get to leverage my life for what matters most. So yesterday was the ultimate reminder of how inconsistent and circumstantial our minds actually are when it comes to eternal life and when it comes to the brevity of life. 20 years removed from 9-11, one of the things that I could not stop thinking about yesterday is that a large portion of our church was not even alive when that happened. It's crazy. As, as I was reliving the moments and where I was, and I, I was in seventh grade, and so everything was kind of getting pieced together. Just the concept of radical terrorism and the idea of what happened at the buildings and things that I was being told. I was too young to even piece it together. But all of us, the last 20 years, have been framed and shaped by that moment. But one of the things I do remember well from 20 years ago was how aware everybody was of the brevity of life. All of a sudden, it was like there was this veil lifted off of, hey, you're not going to live forever. And people were returning and running back to churches like never before, desperate to find answers and sort of like almost awakened and sobered up and going, whoa, 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 whoa. This world isn't what I thought I was. This is not home. And I have to look elsewhere. And to all of you, by the way, who have served over the course of the past 20 years, we are so grateful for what you have done to preserve and protect the freedoms that we enjoy. And I don't, I don't say that just generally over the top, like we have a lot of men and women in this church who have served. And what you have given up has not been in vain. It does matter. And we are so grateful. But as I thought about that moment 20 years ago, I was like, how sad that in our psyche, we can be so aware of certain realities because there's an emotional reason to be aware, but it just never seems to stick. By 2002, so many people had forgotten even looking at uh, the videos of 9-11 and remembering George W. Bush, who if I could just humbly say, watching a man of character lead our country was something that brought tears to my eyes and I'm praying for better days in, in the future. And it just like made me go, oh wow, I've forgotten what this is even like to engage in something like this. And what, what's the most sad about it is just a couple of years removed from that. The smear campaign on him and everybody just kind of forgetting about what exactly happened on 9-11 and what it means for the world that we live in. It was like, not only did we forget about the brevity of life, but we forgot about love for our neighbor. 
And we've watched as 20 years have unfolded so many things that we're, we were so keenly aware of, we were so in tune with. And every year on 9-11, we kind of look back and go, oh, that's right. And it's almost like this reminder where we go, I can't believe we all forgot that. I can't believe we all just need to go back to some of those things, not to go back to feeling the pain, but go back to the good that comes from an awareness of the fact that this life is not all there is. And there is a king named Jesus who has come to bring justice and hope and light to a lost, dark, and broken world. And I thought about how sporadic our awareness of that is and thought, what would it look like for a Christian to stay daily aware of the fact that they will not live forever, this side of heaven, but they are an eternal being and what you do today is directly connected to the life you will live forever. How many of you actually on a daily basis think of the fact that you are living a life that will go on forever? And the trajectory of your life right here and right now is actually going somewhere. And death is not the end. It's literally just a part of the journey that you will continue on into forever. So when we talk about heaven invading the here and now, we're talking about participating in the kingdom of God right here and right now. And what Jesus is going to say in these scriptures is going to give us a framework for how we participate in that life. If you have your Bible, hold it up all over this place. Hold it up. Love the Bible attendance, guys. Love it. Keep your Bible up if you believe Auburn will defeat Penn State next week. Honestly. Very confident. I like it. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Okay, I have to tell you all something. Only a few people know about this. So, my dad's family is from the Philadelphia area. I grew up a fan of the Philadelphia Eagles, star season today in Atlanta. Hopefully we'll get a victory. If you're an Alabama fan, you should like the Eagles because our whole team went to your school. Um, it's like, but I rooted for all these teams from Philly. College football is not as big of a deal up north as it is down south. I know that's a shocker, but I did have a favorite college football team and it was Penn State. And so, oh, don't be mad at me. Like, that's not as bad as Georgia. Um, but like, like the whiteout game for Penn State, for Auburn to be going there, I am freaking out that this is actually happening. And it's very different for me because I root for Penn State as like, a, that's my childhood team. That's what the team I saw my dad rooting for. But I root for Auburn as like a member of this community. Like I actually know coaches and players and I want them to win because I know I don't know anybody up there. And so it's a weird like colliding of two different realities for me. But if you were to ask me right now, who are you rooting for? Next Sunday, I will tell you, it's whoever wins. All right, Matthew, oh, whoa, Matthew chapter six. We'll start in verse one. All right, I'm gonna read 24 verses and we gotta stay locked in because these are the very words of Jesus. Matthew chapter six, verse one. If you're there, say I'm there. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. 
But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, I know you're probably thinking, how in the world are you going to preach on all of this? We're going to keep this one going through the end of the 7 p.m. and just let people come as they will. And we're going to, I'm not doing that. And we're going to spend actually a couple of weeks on these verses next Sunday. Gage Henry is literally going to drill down on the Lord's Prayer. And if you've never heard Gage, our college and community pastor, preach, trust me when I say it is going to be a gift from God at ACC next Sunday. So he's going to drill down a little more on the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to do a little flyover of all of this and talk about the theme of heaven throughout Jesus' instructions. So did you notice the three things Jesus covered when he said, when you give, when you pray, when you fast? This is extremely convicting, but Jesus assumes that his followers do all three of those things. Well, like for maybe the majority of us, the idea of giving to the needy, praying in secret, and going without food to experience more of God is something that's completely disconnected from your priorities and your schedules. I'm not saying this just to shame you. I'm saying this to jar you a little bit. Jesus did not say, hey, make sure you remember to do these things. He's going, since you're my disciples, I know you're doing these things. So if you're here and you're going, yeah, I never do any of those things, humbly, can I just say, you're probably not a disciple of Jesus, because he's literally assuming the behavior of generosity, assuming prayer, and assuming fasting is a part of your life. Now, fasting, even within our church traditions, is something that's been done away with for hundreds of years, and I'm actually planning on doing a full sermon about that. I can't go into full detail about it right now, but here's what I love about all three of these things. He's going, when you give, when you pray, and when you fast... Don't do any of those things to earn the approval of other people. Do them for a reward you will get in heaven. 
So he talks about giving and he's like, hey, you need to do this so secretly that your right hand and your left hand don't know what one another is doing. Now that's physically impossible. Jesus is not laying out commands in these verses. He's giving illustrations. And he's going, this is how your generosity works. This is how your prayer life works. And this is how fasting works. And all of them should not be on an internal level motivated by looking a certain way to other people. They should be motivated by an awareness that you know you're going to live forever. And you know that heaven is eternal. Now, when I read this in passing, I'm going, Jesus, like, I know you're the greatest preacher who ever lived. But this feels a little bit weak to me. Honestly, like when I read it, I'm like, okay, don't do things to earn the approval of other people. Do it because your dad will reward you later. It feels childish. And I'm keenly aware because I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and I know what it takes to get obedience. A reward. That's all. Literally, Anderson, come over here. Not doing it. I got something for you. I'm doing it. Like, it's like, like you, your mind shifted in a second from, I don't think I'm going to, oh, wow, okay, I'm going to do it. And so I'm reading this and I'm going, Jesus, why are you treating us like children who need a reward to be motivated to obey you, who need to actually have a vision of something to obey you? But then I read this part, and this is where it all kind of comes together. Go to verse 19 where he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moss and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When Jesus is telling us to be motivated on a heart level by heaven, he's not trying to motivate us morally or emotionally. He's trying to motivate us logically. Okay, think about all three of those things. Any communication majors in the room? No, I'm the only one? Okay, I'll teach you about communication. It's uh, ethos, pathos, and logos. You ever learned about that? You got, you got ethics, you got emotions, and you got your logic. And what great communicators do is they play to all three and then sort of tie them together and go, this is why you should go with whatever I'm arguing. So ethically is about arguing morally and going, you should do this. Top down, there are real morals, there are real truths, and you should live your life this way. Pathos talks of, it's literally the word that we have for empathy, and it makes you feel something. You tell a story, or you derive something from within somebody to go, I really want to do what you're saying. But the third one, logos, refers to logic. I'm going to play to the fact that you can think, and you can follow along with me, why would you not agree with what I am saying? No emotion involved. No moral obligation involved. Just pure logic. That's where Jesus is going right here. And his logic is, Live your whole life leveraging yourself for heaven because you can't keep anything about the life you're in right now, but you can do everything about where you're going to live forever. It's purely logical. He's going, why would you not live this way? I know it sounds crazy to live your whole life as an offering to God and to other people, but literally you're going to live there forever and literally you might get 80 years here if you're lucky. Why would you not do this? And what he's doing is he's lifting our perspective and he's lifting our eyes so that we can see something about the treasure of God. Now, I've heard it said so many times, you can't take anything with you from this life to heaven. You exit the earth the same way you enter the earth, naked and holding nothing. Nobody takes a U-Haul to their funeral and goes, make sure that stuff gets shipped. (laughs) But never noticed this before. Jesus is going, actually, that's not true. You either could lose everything that you own right here and right now, or you could send it ahead of you. And the only way to send it ahead of you is to lay up 
to store up with your life treasures that are going to exist forevermore called heavenly rewards. Now, we don't ever talk about this because we don't know how to talk about it. But where you're going to live forever, if you're a Christian, if you're not a believer in this room, you need to pay attention at the very end of this sermon, and hopefully we can onboard you into what it would look like to have a relationship with Jesus. But if you have a relationship with Jesus, how you will live your eternity is being framed by what you do today. And Jesus is not like one time going, you'll be rewarded. This is all through the Gospels. Rejoice when you get persecuted. Rejoice when your life gets taken because of my name, because your reward is great in heaven. For Jesus, this is not an allowance that God's going to give you on your way into heaven. This is not like a little thing, a little pat on the back. God's going to give you a little more encouragement if you actually did the thing he told you to do. This is a big deal to Jesus. Like your whole life forever is being built by how you live today. And the reason why we don't know what to do with this is because our whole concept for reward is marred by our framework of sin. So when we think of who's living the best life right now, it all has to do with who has the most stuff, who has the most validation, who has the most fame, who has acquired all of these things that we care about because of sin. So when Jesus talks about a heavenly reward, we're like, well, are we like all going to live in different size houses in heaven? Are we going to have different levels of status? Is this like a heavenly caste system? Like what is happening here? But John Piper talks a lot about this, and the best book I've ever read on heaven is called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. I highly recommend it to you if you want to know what life is going to be like where you're going to live forever. If you're a Christian, it's kind of important. But, um, but John Piper makes the argument that fullness of joy is present in heaven. But there are different capacities for joy in heaven. Have you ever noticed how two balloons can be full of air, but one can have more capacity than another? That's the level to which some of us will be able to enjoy eternity and the level to which some of us will be able to glorify God. Because our joy and God's glory goes hand in hand. And so the, the level that you're going to be able to glorify God eternally and the level to which you will enjoy heaven is being expanded or deflated by whether or not you decide to obey the commands that Jesus is laying out right now. Not realize this is such a weird sermon. Even as I'm saying it right now, I'm like, this just got weird. You tried all week to write it in such a way that it wouldn't be weird, but now you're saying it, and it's weird, and it is what it is. But I just get so frustrated by the fact that heaven has to stay this faraway reality that we avoid because we're like, well, it's just, it'll make me think about death, and I don't want to think about death unless I have to think about death. And so, yeah, they're in a better place, and yeah, I hope I'm in that better place one day. But I actually believe Jesus thinks we should talk about heaven. Jesus thinks that we should be motivated to obey him on an internal level by heavenly rewards more than these three things, and we'll put them on the screen. Approval, comfort, and control. Don't read into the fact that it spells A-C-C. That is just <laughs> irony, okay? But these are the three things he hits on in this passage. He goes, no, no, don't do it to impress people. Why? Because he knows on an internal level, what you do is highly motivated by earning approval before the eyes of other people. Don't collect and store up treasures for this life because all that's going to do is make you comfortable for a few years and then your whole life will be forever in heaven. And definitely don't live your life trying to gain a control that's not even yours. All three of these things, they're deeply riveting for the human heart to latch onto because it's what we need on the inside. And he goes, hey, rewards in heaven are such a big deal that they can actually captivate your heart from the inside out more than these things. 
So if you live your life addicted to the approval of man and you live your life greedy and wanting for more control and more comfort, Jesus is going, the way you're going to change is by getting your eyes on heaven and recognizing you're not going to live here forever, but you will live there forever. So why not aim your life at where you will not only exist, but you will thrive for all of eternity. And the real reason why we can't get our hearts and minds around this, I think, is the faith issue. I think we actually don't really believe this stuff. I think it's convenient to believe in it so we feel better at the moments in life that make no sense. We don't really believe that life in heaven is going to be that good. We don't really like to activate our brains to go there and go, hold up, I'm supposed to remind myself on a daily basis how fleeting this life is and let my heart and mind be guided more by that than by this? Yeah, look at verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, this is Jesus just riffing on that verse with something so beautiful. Watch this. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Go back to the beginning. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Watch this. Jesus is saying that just like your eyes lead your body physically, your treasure leads your heart spiritually. So my eyes, wherever my eyes go, you can even watch it in this room. Wherever my eyes go, my body is like naturally turning in certain directions. And Jesus is going, follow that principle. Where your treasure goes, that's where your heart goes. So if you want to have eyes on heaven, what does that take? 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 18. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I've heard this verse quoted so often in moments of tragedy, so often when we want to give up. But I've heard very few people say, how do you get your eyes on what is eternal? And how do you keep your focus on the fact that you're going to live forever? And I believe, based on what Jesus just taught, is that it's a lot more practical and logical than it is emotional. Jesus is saying, the way you know where your eyes are focused and whether or not your eyes are focused on heaven is what you do with your money. Period. And that's not fun to say for anybody in this room. Because you're going, no, 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 it has to do with my worship. It has to do with my focus. You talked about focus. No, 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 no. Jesus just exposed us in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. The eye is the lamp of the body. And what does he say at the very end of it? You can't serve two masters. Either you love one and hate the other. What are the two masters, Jesus? Is it God and or sex? Is it God and or status? Is it approval? Is it no, 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 no. There are two competitors for the human heart that affect whether or not your eyes are on heaven. And it's me or it's money. And you cannot have both. One will master you. And I'll say this from what I've seen in other people's lives. Money is a great tool, but it is a terrible master. And even as I got to this point in the sermon, knowing that I was going to say all of that, I was like, I don't love this. Because I know people have had experiences in church where giving and money is talked about in such a manipulative way in such a way to drive up offerings, in such a way to go, hey, oh, perfect timing to preach on generosity. You're building a building right down the street, I see. Like, it's like, come on. 
But we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount, and it's right there, and I'm literally arm wrestling spiritually with God this week going, no, I like to talk about it during bringing time and just let that be what it is every week so it's readily a reminder. I know that Jesus taught on it 15% of the time. It is the largest portion of Jesus' teachings. If you ask what topic did he talk about more than anything, it's money. So I do think we need to honor that, and that's why we have a weekly reminder of the fact that, hey, we're generous people. We live for the kingdom of heaven. We're building it. This is your local church. We talk about it. But I'm like, I don't want to preach on this. And it's like God was like, okay, do you love these people? More people listening to me today are unknowingly enslaved by this area than any other area of their life. Unknowingly. It, it, it stays secret. Because we pay attention to the issues that are more visible and that feel more moral. But Jesus is going, no area of your life exposes whether or not you are a heavenly-minded citizen of heaven or if you're just here living for now. And so I know we got middle schoolers and high schoolers in our church who are already comparing themselves to the people they go to school with based on how much money their parents make. They're already showing up at school comparing material things. We got college students who are almost tempted to define what they major in and what they chase with their career by not just pressure from their parents, but pressure from culture to go, hey, you are more important. You are more valuable the more that you acquire. So you need to be very strategic about this. We got parents who unknowingly have stressed this area more than any other area, including Jesus. Your value is tied to income and stuff. And we got young adults and we got growing families who the temptation is to go, let me build a kingdom for myself. And it manifests itself two different ways, but the idol is the same. We got people who are greedy and longing for more and continuing to lay up more treasures to enjoy on this earth. Or we have people who are in debt and are enslaved to the lender and are feeling the noose tug every single time they want to be more generous, every single time they want to position themselves better. They're feeling the decisions that they made a while ago and going, because I couldn't set myself up with more of a wise framework for my future, now I feel like I'm spending the rest of my life with these handcuffs around me. This is a spiritual area, and there is no area of your life, including your relationship with God, that is untouched by what you do with your money. And Jesus is going, this is the practical test of whether or not you actually live for the kingdom of heaven. So here we are. Y'all, I know where we are. We're in Auburn, Alabama. The culture of this community and the culture of that university that I love is money. It is. And if we're going we're gonna to put that word remnant on, our, on ourselves and go, we want to be the remnant of God, this, along with sexuality, is going to be the area that we stand out. And that we go, we've got to be able to offer something different to the world. And we can't just get unknowingly swallowed into a way of life that's so enslaving and built on comparing yourself. You have to give yourself a framework for living a life that actually matters. Because, remember, Jesus is not being emotional or moral. He's being logical. Hey, guys, think about this for one second. You're going to lose all of it. Or you could send it ahead. What do you want to do? And it's just wise in thinking about this. I read a commentary this week that said it's like showing up right before the Civil War ends to a Confederate house and saying, hey, your money that's in the currency of the Confederacy is going to be useless in just a couple of weeks. What do you want to do? What would they do? They would convert it all to U.S. dollars and only keep what is necessary to live until that point. 
And it's with that level of framework that we go, okay, we're in a wartime mentality where we recognize that the gospel's got to go out on planet earth like never before. We're in an eternal story where we have an opportunity to participate in the kingdom of God like never before. I just feel called by God today to beg thousands of people, please don't waste your life on money. Great tool, terrible God. Please don't waste your life trying to compare your value to your friends on the basis of what a number says about you. This is madness. This is not the kingdom of God. And what we can't do and what's so tempting to do in Auburn is put a Jesus spin on prosperity and make it look like godliness. And what we have to do is model for people that no, money's not the enemy. The love of money is the enemy. People say, no, it's the root of all evil. No, 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 no. You can engage with something that doesn't enslave you. You are called, this is how you invest your life for heaven. You are actually called to make money your slave instead of the other way around. And you are called to live your life in such a way that sends treasure ahead of you. And I don't know of a church who has an opportunity like we do to lay up stacks and stacks and stacks of eternal rewards like we do. And I I can't tell you what that looks like. I can't physically go, it's going to be a house that looks like this, or it's going to be this level of enjoyment of eternal pleasures. I can just tell you that we are supposed to, at faith value, take Jesus at his word and go, I know, even if I can't see it, and even if I can't taste it, I know that that way is better. And part of the reason why so many of you will be passionate followers of Jesus and never let Jesus in on this area of your life, it's not because you don't want to, it's because you don't have a practical framework to see how this actually works in real time. So this is weird for me. I really want to give you something at the end of this sermon that plays to your emotions and gets you fired up about living a generous life for the kingdom of God. And I feel like the Lord was like, no, you gotta do what I did in the Sermon on the Mount. You gotta go totally logical. You've got to explain to them Here's how you leverage your life practically in the area of finances. And so I know you brought your friend and you're like, what? The one time you do this, Miles, why now? Because the Holy Spirit. But I need you to follow along. I need you to follow along with this because I'm not Dave Ramsey, y'all. I, I don't have the 10 steps to financial peace. Here's how you get out of debt and all that. I just have something that was taught to me in college that from my perspective personally in leading, and I get to lead two things, our family and this church, I can promise you that what was taught to me in college, it works. This works and it makes much of the kingdom of God while keeping your heart and life free from the love of money. Here's what I was taught in college. I had a pastor on our staff say, hey, you're getting married. Do you have a plan for money? You know, divorces are most often caused by financial issues, not by infidelity, not by something like, you know, and I'm like, no, I never thought of that. And I want to be a pastor, so I wasn't planning on making a lot. And he was like, oh, your father-in-law probably loves you. Um, This is awesome. Yeah, I need to teach you. So he gets out a marker, and he puts three words on a whiteboard, and we'll put them up here. These are the three words. Live, save, give. He said, here's why everyone around you is either in debt or greedy. Because they never learned how to steward money well, and what they decided to do is live their life by this framework. You get an income... And you make decisions in response to that income about how am I going to live, what am I, or what are we going to save, and then what are we going to give. And he said, the problem is living your life in this order causes you to overindulge on the first. And it's the reason why so few people actually never, or so many people actually never even get to two and three. Because if you just live off of what you make, that's slavery. And then if a credit card company shows up and goes, hey, you can actually 
live off a lot more than what you make. Just pay it off later. Just put it off until later. And then we end up competing with other people. And by the way, even as I'm saying this, I'm seeing some of you who have student loans. And I, I do believe that there are very biblical ways of paying off that debt in due time. That this sermon cannot even scratch the surface of how you need to strategically go about that. We have people in this church who want to invest into young people and teach them how to steward their money. I would encourage you to get in touch with them. If you ask us about who are those people and how do those groups arise, we will make that happen for you. Just trust me. But so many people end up going, no, 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 I'm going to live off what I make. I'll hopefully save some. And then with the leftovers, I'll give. I wanted to show you guys some stats on tithing in the American church, but it would be impossible for me to preach um, without showing an unhealthy level of emotion of how sad it is. And it's not because people don't want to tithe. I think it's because they get sucked into this lifestyle where it's like, take what you make, live. Wait, you need to be smart. You need to save. Retirement. Okay, okay. Uh, I got to save. And then, oh, wait, I can sponsor a compassion kid. And oh, I, I want to be a part of the kingdom of God. Yeah. But what's left over, even in that moment, is literally just the scraps of what really has your heart. But if your treasure defines where your heart is, and we're supposed to have eyes on heaven, this is what he said. He said, what you need to do is you need to flip it. And you need to live your life. Go ahead and put the next three up. Like this, give, save, live. Your first priority needs to be generosity as a man of God. Your first priority is how has God positioned me to live a life that builds the kingdom of heaven? And your second priority along with that is how do I steward my money wisely? I'm not just grabbing whatever it is that I make and living off of it. I'm putting myself in a financial position to make much of heaven and to lay up treasures for heaven and to be a wise steward on planet earth. This is how it works. And I would say this, the secret to financial peace is living on less than you're actually making. That is the secret to financial peace. You can take all the classes in the world, but it's all going to boil down to this. There's a discipline called living on less than what you take in. And I can tell you from personal experience, it puts you in a powerful position to make moves for the glory of God when you live your life that way. I say that from experience because that's how our church is in the position that we're in. I'll take you behind the scenes just for a second. People ask me all the time, how in the world are you guys building a building and you never did a building fund? Did anybody notice that, by the way? We never got up here and said, we're doing a building fund. It's called Jesus Wins. And you can give to Jesus Wins or Church Without Walls or whatever your creative name is to kind of manipulate and steward more generosity. It tells you what I think about building funds. But it's like I could, get, I could cast a compelling vision. That's what I'm supposed to do. And go, look at this. We can do this. And you can give to Jesus Wins today. Put your money in the offering. It's all going. Why did we never do that? Because we felt like the best framework to set up our church for the future was just to invite our people to be generous because God was calling them to and trust that that will be enough. But in that, there had to be wisdom. So something started happening a couple of years ago. You guys started giving a lot more than we were spending. And we were being faithful to give where it is necessary and bless the community around us. And we're being faithful to hire staff and create structures for people to participate in this church. But one of the things we didn't do is we didn't adjust our budget according to what you guys were giving. We set our budget at a certain level and we said, we're going to spend below that, even if they give 10 times that. And you guys at times did give 10 times that. But we didn't as leadership go, okay, this is our opportunity to start living a little more comfortable and we're going to do this, we're going to do that. No, no, no. What do we do? We knew there's no way we're going to have the capacity to take care of all these people for the future. So we're going to set some aside. We're going to set this aside for the future. And then 
Oh my gosh, 17 acres are available on Hamilton Road to build a building. Most people in our, in our position would have gone and seen that eternal opportunity, kingdom opportunity and gone, can't do it because we've been living off of what we're taking in. But you know what I got to do in that moment? What our elders got to do? We'll buy it right here, right now. We're ready because we had positioned ourselves like that. So I'm not trying to present to you something that keeps you from having fun or keeps you from living your best life. I'm trying to present to you something that positions you in a way to make a big deal out of heaven. Financial freedom is awesome. Generosity is awesome. And you know what it becomes? It becomes a little game between you and God. Like, however much I can be generous to people, God, would you be the one who defines this journey for me? And even if it starts out with such a little amount, do not underestimate that. Because I was, what was I, 25 years old, and she had another year of teaching left, and I took my first job, which was like no money at all. We started living this way. It changed everything. But then I realized, hold up, hold up. That's, that's great what that guy taught me, but that's not what the Bible teaches. I think the Bible backs this up, but the Bible gives an on-ramp to get started. And this is what I want to leave you with today. Team, you can come up here. I don't know what you're going to play behind me because it's not emotional at all, but totally logical. Here's, here's, here's what I would say is the biblical version of generosity. You bring, give, save, live. We did a message from Nehemiah a couple years ago called Bring the Tithe. And we saw that the language of the Old Testament is not about giving anything. It's about bringing back to God what he has entrusted to you. So here's what heavenly-minded people do. Here's how you live with eyes on heaven. You go, okay, the Bible teaches that the starting point of generosity is 10% of your income. That's an Old Testament framework for how the house of Levi was provided for that we believe. People go, the New Testament doesn't teach tithing. Absolutely, it does not. I believe the Bible teaches that tithing is a starting point for biblical generosity. So if you're here and you're like, well, yeah, we still, we're not at that 10% yet, great. You haven't become a beginner yet, and that's fine. This is a great place for you to start and go, what does it look like to the first thing I do with my funds is I bring back to God what he has entrusted to me, to whatever church you call home. It doesn't have to be this church. And then what's the second thing you do? Well, after I bring that tithe, I, I still want to bless people. I still want to sponsor kids through compassion. I still want to give a big tip when God burdens my heart. That's one of my favorite things to do is looking into the eyes of a server and going, oh, I just want to be in a position financially to make your life awesome right here and right now. And especially being in Auburn where most people know that I'm a pastor, I love doing that and going, Christians don't have to be the people who tip little. They can be the people who take care of people and be overwhelmingly generous. And I'm like, okay, okay, then you're gonna give and then we're gonna set aside money and then I got two girls and if, if number three is a girl, weddings, y'all. Anybody own a wedding venue, by the way? Because you should bless your pastor's family. Okay, anyway, save and then live. Now I know what you're thinking reading that. You're like, so you're gonna bring 10% and then you're gonna be radically generous and you're gonna save some. Oh, and then, and then just live off the rest. This looks like a formula that can only work for people who make a lot of money. But I can tell you, on, on what would be illegal to pay someone full-time in 2021, that Courtney and I lived this out 10 years ago when we got married. And here's what God does, y'all. You know, you know I don't teach prosperity. You know I don't teach. If you give it, God will fill it. You, stop it. Stop it. God's a relational God, though. He likes to be involved in every area of your life. You do this, and what you've done is you've told him, I recognize that I'm a citizen of heaven. 
and I recognize that you're invited into this area of my life. So you know what he'll do when you start living this way? He'll start showing up because you invited him. There are people in this room who the exact number they needed to pay a bill showed up in their mailbox because they were faithful to live according to this formula. And it's not the formula that makes it spiritual, it's the heart posture. And I, I recognize we got a lot of young people and you're like, great, bring, give, save, live on whatever my parents give me to get by for the next month. I'm telling you, if you don't formulate this discipline now with $100, you will not live this way with $100 million. You won't. And God knows where his good stewards are. And I'm convinced that if you leverage your life for the kingdom of God, God will continue to not just pour out the ability to get by, but pour out his presence in a brand new way. There's a reason why the very next section, and this is what I'll be preaching on in a couple weeks, what does Jesus talk about right after this section about God and money? Worry. Do not worry about what you'll eat, what you'll wear. Pagans worry about these things, but what? You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. I'm not gonna close in prayer, and this is like no manipulation at all. This is total obedience. But some of you need to put this message to work right now. So we're gonna go into our bringing time. We'll put the ways to bring on the screen. You don't have to give here. Even if you wanna take your phone out and go, God had been laying it on my heart to bless that person. You get on Venmo, you give. You respond in obedience. This isn't a message about compulsion or formulaic following God. This is about, you have a relationship with your heavenly father, let him reveal to you where your heart is. And I truly believe that we could see generations change if we are faithful with this area. I believe heaven matters. Let's get our eyes on heaven. We'll take a couple minutes and even beyond giving time or bringing time, if you wanna take a moment to just repent and confess to God that money has taken captive your heart, this is a great opportunity for you to get right with your heavenly father. You know where you are and you know what you need from this word. Matt and the team will come up here and lead in just a couple minutes, but y'all take this time between you and God right where you're at.